It's me, Mark Stone, and this is the Backseat Driver Podcast. Sat in the, shall we say, the the (laughs) likes of rural Cheshire with what you might call motor racing royalty. Uh, It would have been nice, as I'm sure Christiane would have agreed, to have had her father in his Highland sat here instead of her. But I think we can safely say you're the embodiment of your late father. <laughs> from what I can from what people have told me. Oh God. You are your dad. <laughs> but I would like to welcome to the Backseat Driver Radio Show, Christiane Ireland. Christiane, welcome to the Backseat Driver Radio Show. Good evening, Mark. It's absolutely delightful to meet you. I have to say, at last, <laughs> seeing you on videos and, and sort of over the phone is not the same. And immediately I feel comfortable and welcome. And it's it's like that thing, kindred spirit. Mm. It's it's sort of, it's either there or it's not. So it's lovely to meet you. And thank you for arranging this and, you know, making it happen. Fantastic. Now, the great interesting thing is for for the listeners... Your dad came from Mythamroyd in Yorkshire, so there is the great Yorkshire connection. Absolutely. And it's something, I can't pronounce that one. What, Mythamroyd? Yeah, no, (laughs) forget it. I I know what it looks like on the paper, but I cannot pronounce it. And yes, it's really strange, because of course he always was so proud at saying, of course I'm a Scotsman. He was born in Yorkshire. We lived in Wales, Mm. and we have Ireland as a surname. You know, how (laughs) cock-eyed and kooky is that? Um, but Yorkshire, of course, we got many ties with Yorkshire. Not only my father, my mother, so his first wife, mm-hmm. came from Scarborough. Right. And my grandfather, who was the original kind of James Herriot veterinary surgeon, but he specialised in horses, he had a practice in Yorkshire. So both my <coughs> uncle and my father went to school. Their first prep schools were yeah. in Yorkshire as well. Now, the one thing about your father, Innes, besides being a racing driver, <laughs> he was a paratrooper. Yes. He was a trawler captain. Yes, he was. Uh, he he was president of the British Racing Drivers Club. Yep. And he was described by Sterling Moss, who, if you don't mind me saying, <laughs> was also your godfather, but he was described as his generation sterling moss's generations equivalent to james hunt he was in his island was basically what racing drivers were and what racing drivers should be instead of these sterile cutouts that are forced in front of us now i can't i can completely agree with absolutely everything that you've said when you said that about what Sterling said about Dad being the sort of James Hunt of, of his of their era, he was absolutely spot on. My father was naughty, he was irresponsible, he was all of the things that you would not want to take home to, to meet your parents. But strangely enough, he probably was the most honest man you'd ever meet because he, he would say to people when they said, you know, when they put their hands up in horror and thought, oh God, there he is again. <laughs> and what's he up to now? And who's that with him? Um, he would be the first one to admit, well, you know, it's how I live. It's how I choose to live. And he accepted all of the responsibility that went with it as far as I know. I miss that kind of driver. Um, and... I was privileged enough to have a friendship with Mr. Hunt um, and it was my father's fault. He introduced us (laughs) and (laughs) 
We'll be all right. Um, well, there are certain things I... We won't go into all the stories that you and I know about, <laughs> no, James. We, we, no, we'll leave some of the detail out. No, they... Yes, in a way, because they had that same honourable personality. Mm. And I think that's what made them special. Mm. Yes, they were naughty. Yes, they were playboys. Yes, my God, my father could drink everybody under the table and then still get up on the table and dance without any pants on underneath his kilt then climb in a formula one car absolutely the next day well you know yeah (laughs) or climb a tower and james did have the same personality and they were thoroughly honorable in in many respects and they were loyal as the day is long so their handshake meant something and i think i've watched i started losing interest in motor racing in formula one i guess in the 80s probably. I was doing other things. I was probably getting pissed like my dad as well. You know, there was that Can as I well. Point out you know, my, 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 this is <laughs> an 11 o'clock Sunday morning. Oh, is it? Oh, yes. Ooh. Do I have to... Yeah. No, 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 you're all right. Carry on. Um, you can edit those things out, can't yeah, well, you? I don't. They just run. <laughs> and I kind of feel that I lost some of what I'd grown up with yeah. because it wasn't there anymore. It had become... It was becoming more clinical... The personalities were still there, but it was a little bit harder to find them. And actually, they had so many sponsors, it was untrue. Um, in my dad's day, they had, I think, you know, they had SO or BP or Shell. Um, they might have had um, Dunlop and then, of course, Les Leston. I was going to say the bit of Dunlop, yeah, Dunlop overalls and yeah, such. absolutely. And the Les Leston helmets. And, well, maybe, and the maybe, underwear. Yeah. The flame-proof underwear. Yeah. And then maybe <laughs> Bell. If you were getting modding, you'd have a Bell helmet. He ended up with a Bell helmet, but his original ones came from, oh, God, I can't remember the name, Oak something, um, and they were handmade. Yeah. And so was Graham's, Fanjo, Sterling's, you know, that sort of mm. era, Pedro's. Yeah. Um, and then obviously Bell sort of came on the scene and my last, my dad's last helmets were obviously Bell. So yeah, yes, the drivers today, talented, I can't deny. And I don't know how anyone can say you can compare the drivers today to those days. And it's not because anybody was better. No. It was, and everybody says, oh, but you're going to say it's because it was different. It was different. Um, in my dad's day, and this is something that, you know, I feel the difference between the cars are obviously insurmountable. But in my dad's day, for him or any of his teammates to actually get a Lotus on the grid was one of the greatest achieve- achievements, let alone get it round the track and home safely. You know, they, that was the difference. And you had to have a different breed of person. Um, and I think nowadays they're more it's modern technology yeah isn't it but i mean you told the tale and i'll let you tell (laughs) that your dad started his apprenticeship at rolls royce in glasgow and uh, blew it up well he didn't blow the whole factory up i don't think i think he (laughs) spectacularly tried i'm not entirely sure what he was trying to do but he started off in the aeronautical section in glasgow Um, as an apprentice and he'd been stripping down Merlin engines because one of the things I found sort of many years ago was his handwritten notes of stripping down that Merlin engine and putting it all back together so he did handwritten notes so that was taken from the time when he was up there and I presume he loved flying anyway so maybe that was the route he was going to take but obviously he thought he would be clever and uh, there was 
an experiment which went horribly wrong and then on the back of that Rolls thought no we can't afford to have this guy in here (laughs) (laughs) so they thought what the hell do we do with him because actually he's talented Um, he knows his stuff he's intuitive and I think that was the thing with my father's driving with everything he did he was intuitive he was a man of feeling understanding without necessarily having that instruction manual so they thought we've got to put him somewhere and uh, the automatic place was to send him down to Rolls-Royce in London um, where he lived on a motor torpedo boat in Chelsea Wharf and then went to work every day in a Bentley (laughs) 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 much to the horror of Rolls-Royce I think they turned a blind eye as as they suddenly realized actually you know you might have something here and he was probably quite a good chap to have on board so when did he start racing he actually started early 50s Hmm. and that was club racing um, obviously, he well, not being funny, races of that age all did. You look at Clark, you look at uh, Stewart, yes. you look at they all started club, club racing. racing. And as yeah. a rule, in somebody else's car, Absolutely. that would say, Well, go on, you have a go. And yeah. the owner of the car would discover that the guy they'd let have a go in it was, was actually than quite good. Yeah. yeah, so well, you'll drive it, I'll run it. And then that's when they got the brakes. It's like Jimmy Clark getting, getting his heart, his leg up with Ian Scott Watson. Yeah, but my father was was I think he was lucky enough where they lived in the borders um, there were two very elderly sisters spinster sisters mm. living and my father befriended them or one of them because in the garage there were two Bentleys yeah um, my dad's one well that was he was eventually left was a 1920 28 three liter Bentley and there was another four would it be a four liter well they're four and a half four and it might four, be four a, and a half I mean there were all sorts of engine size yeah and that because the other trick was they used to take a three liter chassis and put a four and a half liter in it so lots of Bentley's got lots of engines yeah I, that's right and uh, dad's was certainly a three liter anyway he befriended the chauffeur as well and every day he'd be up there cleaning it he eventually got to drive it when the two old ladies died they left my father and my uncle um the bentleys yeah and so the three liter bentley was the one my father started his racing career in yeah (laughs) and i think he also persuaded his father to buy him an old riley and he did have a riley at one stage before the lotuses came on board So, where did it go from there? I mean, did he then go, I mean, his military service, because yes. he, he was a paratrooper. He was. Well, that was also under a drunken stupor. <laughs> he, he was in the, um, he obviously did his national I didn't service. Mean, as he was about to leave out, I didn't sign up <laughs> no, with no, no, this. No, he, no, he was a bit like that. He was in the um, King's Own Scottish Borderers. Yeah. And I think after a very good one of their annual dues or something and they were due to sign up to where they were then going to go on for their next stage um he'd signed up for the paratroopers he thought it would be a jolly good laugh yeah and when he realized what he'd done um he thought christ i've got to jump out of a plane um but he did it and he went to egypt he served out there for two years um and but he was still doing some club racing because of course he had the Bentley when he was um, in his doing his national service and when he was I think he was in barracks up in the border somewhere and there was a race that he had entered and he thought I've got to go and do this so he escaped from barracks to go and do the race because he thought no one will ever know yeah (laughs) 
but he won the race, um, you know, which was, uh, he didn't think he was going to win, and made the newspapers, (laughs) and then... And then his um, commanding officer hauled him in the next day. <laughs> he managed to get off with a, with with no um, no problem by saying that he would give the uh, commanding officer a ride in the Bentley. Right. So that was fine. <laughs> so how did it progress from there? He was then. I think he asked his brother who had a very wealthy friend, because he realised at that stage that the Bentley wasn't going to take him to the next level. Well, I mean, even then it would be an old car. It, it was, absolutely. And I think it was limited. He enjoyed it. He did charter hall, those kind of places. But it wasn't going to take him anywhere further. And he knew that he wanted to do more. Mm. It was in. It was there. Yeah. He'd watched other people. I think he had um, full throttle that book and I think he was inspired by the stories the tales he also one of his heroes was Mike Hawthorne yeah of course so he thought well actually maybe I could do that but I need a car Mm. he didn't have any money um but my uncle one of his best friends and he was also an army serving officer he was a major Robinson I think his name was um loaned him the money to buy his first first lotus 11 yeah and that's where it all started he then had got married and they moved to elstead in surrey near godalming and he sort of had a couple of garages mm. there and set up um servicing bentleys mm. and rolls royces as you do and then you know having the little racing team yeah he also looked after other people's race cars but he had one of his own, which was sponsored by, you know, Major Robin Robinson. Yeah. So that's sort of where it started. From there, he did go and race that car at Reims. Right. In, um, I think it was 1958. Mm. And at Reims, he was in a race against Ferraris. And he won both of those races in a little Lotus 11. And apparently, (laughs) the story goes that when Enzo found out that both of his Ferrari teams had been beaten, he was shouting down the phone, beaten by what? (laughs) And by whom? And apparently, and, and, and from then, it was Enzo that spotted him, really, and sort of thought, actually, this guy might have something going for him. Yeah. And I think other people had then, obviously, Chapman was around at the time, mm. um, and that's where he was given his first drive. Yeah. And, of course, Alan Stacey was his, <clears throat> his uh, teammate at the time. Jim, <sighs> Jimmy, hadn't, Jimmy wasn't <clears throat> around at that stage. Now, in this era... I mean, like one of the most famous for doing all the different, shall we say, disciplines was Sterling Moss. Yes. But they drive a single seater yep. in the morning. They drive a sports car in the afternoon. Around tea time, they drive a, a big saloon car, a big Jaguar. <laughs> I mean, I conclude your dad went through all this. Yes, they he got, did. They'd race over the weekend, yes. but they'd race about seven or eight cars. Because there's a famous story of Sterling mm. Moss having the radio in on in a Ferrari, tuned into the commentary. So he could work out where everybody was in relation to him. him. And I think that's, that's exactly what it was like. I mean, obviously, I was, a, I was tiny. Hmm. I mean, I was born in 58. So, obviously... So you went to all the... You went to the meetings. Yes, but I did in my pram. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 
And obviously during, yes, during that period, I mean, I, I was um, dad's mechanic at the time in those early days was somebody called Britt Pierce, who was Mike Hawthorne's old mechanic, who after Mike, you know, um, tragically got killed, dad took Brit on and Brit used to look after me so I was always known as Snuffy <laughs> and I remember when I got married um, Brit was at my wedding and he said oh it's lovely to see you Snuffy I said right I've got a bone to pick with you mate why do you call me Snuffy and he said because I looked after you as a baby from about 18 months onwards when your dad used to turn up in the e-type He'd get the um, silver cross pram out of the back of the E-type, put it all up, shove you in it and say, there you are, Brit. And apparently I used to always have a snuffly cold. Oh, right. So that's why I was known as Snuffy. But yes, I used to go around um, to the early, in the early days to some of the races. Not all of them, obviously, because, you know, when he started to earn a little bit of money... By 1960, um, he'd bought, you know, the big house, the big country gentleman's house with the airstrip out the back. And <laughs> what <we're>, you do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and hot and cold running staff, including a nanny that yeah. looked after me. Um, but yes, I mean, obviously, I don't remember those early days and, and so much of, of who he was doing what in. I do know that in 61, 62, I remember pulling off when I was just finding out a bit more about, you know, what kind of cars he had driven. Mm. And I was absolutely staggered at the amount of races he got in in one year. I mean, it was sort of almost every day, every week, sometimes two, two in a day, as you say. And in those days, he had an aeroplane so he could fly from from one track to another and you know can you imagine getting it out of your you know your gto ferrari and then getting into a little formula one car and it was like that you think of what they had to adapt well, they, they were jobbing drivers yeah they were it's like the jocks today the jockeys yeah. isn't it yeah. it's exactly the same it's the same they do, principle. They do an appearance money. Yeah. They don't start That's money. That's right, start money. If they got a faster slap in, they do a few quid. If they won, we were quids in here. <laughs> and I think a lot of the time for Dad, it was the start money. Yeah. And sometimes that was bottles of whiskey, so yeah. that was even better. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and I just think that's what he loved. That's really what he loved. And he loved the passion that went with it. He was passionate about his cars. He understood... I've never witnessed somebody understand a car in the way that I witnessed him whenever I, I was a passenger. Yeah. He very rarely let me drive him anywhere, to be fair. <laughs> um, but I witnessed the difference between us and them. Yeah. And it was very, very, very evident. And, and it's that feel. It's sort of, it's instinctive. Mm. And I do, I have inherited some of that, I think. Um, but no, it was... Definitely, it was a hard taskmaster as yeah. well. Because the other thing is, they often didn't know. You know, they might have two drives in one day and they might have a full week and he'd leave home on the Sunday night, pack, pack up the aeroplane or whatever it was, even if he was going in one of the cars. Um, and he would hang his dressing gown up. And I always remember him saying to me, because I asked him once, why the hell do you... You never wear a dressing gown. You don't wear anything when, you know, when you go around stark naked. Why do you hang your dressing gown up? And he said, that's because I never know whether I'm going to see it again. Yeah. And it was that kind of thing. So he would go off on the Sunday night, 
say goodbye to you know me and my mother and and the nanny or whatever else was wandering around the, the enormous house and we never knew if we were going to see him again because that was dad's job and it was a bizarre way to grow up really <laughs> but the other interesting thing is i mean i before before i conduct any interview i try and get a little bit of background i looked at the background of your dad and gave up making notes <laughs> because the, the the laptop will scroll and scroll yeah. and scroll yeah. Both the races, the cars. I mean, he raced at Monaco. He was injured at Monaco. Yeah. But there was a single season. Well, that was with the queer box. What was that? Go on. Where, at Mon- Monaco. Yeah. When he went into the tunnel. Yeah. And and they and notice they it was called the queer box and basically it was the wrong way round box. All oh, right. And they didn't you know they'd only told him they didn't only put in the you know that day I think or the day before. By the way, it works backwards. By the way, it works backwards. And and anyway, so he went in what he thought was going into second it mm. went into reverse so he came out of the tunnel the at a, you know at 100 miles an hour and the car followed him yeah. and he was, he was skidding out <laughs> um but yes you're right his even i today i can google and I look at some of the magazine articles. I look at some of the forums, mm. you know, going back to the early 2000s and things. There were some amazing forums. And, and listening to, to what people perceived he was. And I, I would read, read some of these things. And I pick up snippets about my old man that I never knew about. <laughs> and it's fascinating. And it's there are so many stories out there. Obviously, I lived a lot of them. Mm. And I was there for all of his racing career um i survived that that period <laughs> so did he um and then i suppose i still lived in in his house until i got married um in the late 70s and that but even then we were still you know in great touch all the time yeah. of course we were and even then the stories were coming out and I'd sit there in amazement because he was a great raconteur. You didn't go up to him and say, is that true? Did you actually do that? Yes, but the trouble is... <laughs> he probably did. Yes. And that was the frightening thing because I always remember growing up and it wasn't so much about his career. That's the interesting thing about my father. He did have a career and a great career. And, you know, he did have some podiums and he did win... Team Lotus, their very first Grand Prix. But it's the stories, it's the reputation that's out there mm. about about what he was. So I learn things, I, not so much now. I think I've pretty much got the full ticket now. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them we won't go into. If anybody's um, listening that knows something... Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> let you know. please, please let me know. You can get my email address from Mark. <laughs> I kind of feel there's still more out there because a lot of people, he touched a lot of people's lives whilst he was motor racing, but also afterwards, and especially in his last few years when he was the president of the BRDC. And I know um, through, I mean, Facebook is the most amazing platform for building a network. Mm. And um, I was in touch with um, Justin Gurney and I sort of, 
didn't know some of the stories from the later years when he was BRDC president yeah. and actually when he was ill as well. Mm. And so there are people out there that do have some wonderful stories that actually I don't know yet. Yeah. And so those are the things that are going to be interesting over the next year or so because we are trying to find out some of these stories um, for a little project in the background that's hush-hush. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he was a great man. And I feel very privileged to have known him not only as a father, but as a man, mm. because he wasn't not only was he a racing driver, he had many other talents, mm. as you mentioned earlier. But one of the stories that I grew up with thinking, no, it is not true, was the time when it was in America. Because he drove NASCAR, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yep. And actually, that was one of his last races, or Daytona was yeah. one of his last, yeah. So that was NASCAR, wasn't it? 67. And he hated it, I think. No. Oh. Yes, no, he didn't. It wasn't something he really wanted to do, but I think it was sort of something he felt he ought to do. Yeah. He loved Sebring, and he drove there in the early 60s with Steve McQueen. They were mates. Yeah. You can imagine those two together. And there are some, <laughs> <laughs> there are some wonderful stories in his book about him and Steve. Mm. Um, but I always grew up with the story thinking, thinking can't be true was about when he drove he said he drove a Hertz at the time the car rental people had this wonderful advert saying leave your car anywhere and we'll pick it up yeah now dad was staying and I don't know what racing it was it could have been Sebring or somewhere like that he was staying in a very glitzy hotel the Beatles was were there in the same hotel and um there was a wonderful big swimming pool and he had a Hertz hire car I think they had a very wonderful evening <laughs> good food good wine and I think um, before they all went off to bed they thought it would be a really good idea I think dad said um, should we try should we just see whether they'll they'll honor mm. what they keep saying on their adverts mm. and should we just pop it in the swimming pool <laughs> so the car was driven into the swimming pool Hertz leapt on it yeah. they thought this is the best advertising campaign because they then did a whole filming thing about collecting winching, it winching this car out of the thing whilst dad had done a bunk not paying the bill or anything <laughs> but they didn't need to because it was the best advertising yeah. that they could have ever had but to just go back a little bit, I can remember you telling me, and it's a bit of a known thing, there's images of um, your dad with the Ford GT40 on the trailer, hooked to the back of the Aston Martin, driving it down to Le Mans. Yes. There's you going out with your mum shopping in a Ferrari 250 GTO. Yep. I mean, <laughs> these cars, I mean, these cars now are worth millions. They, they are. are serious. I mean, what was it? Back then, they were just cars. <laughs> and in many ways, they were they didn't have the value then they that didn't. they have now. But what was it like growing up with these cars? I mean, these cars, even then, won world championships. They were cars that people would pay a lot of money to get behind the wheel of. And you only one meant shopping in one. Yeah, but you see at the time... I mean, OK, the GTO, that was the one that was built for Sterling. Yeah. That um, obviously Sterling had had his accident. Is that the one just putting in that's on the video on... Of social media where yes. your dad's driving it at Goodwood. Um, yes. Yeah, right. He yeah. won the TT in it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And it was a sort, it was the um, UDT Laystall colours. Yeah. So that funny green. I, I don't know if you Strange green. green strange colour, yeah. green. I mean, it's not everybody's cup of tea. I love it. Yeah. And it had the tartan strip on the front as yeah. well. Um, yeah. No, that was the one. And dad went and, and um, 
he was given the drive on that oh. after Sterling had his terrible accident. That was lived at home for a while. Mm. Um, and it was, you know, my mother was put on the, the insurance mm. and we used to go shopping in it. So she'd wedge <laughs> me in the front. And there is there was a guy in who lived in New Radnor, which is our little village, and he used to say on a Saturday morning you could almost you know set your watch mm. to Mrs. Island coming shopping with a little basket um, in the GTO, going down the high street uh, with me with my feet wedged on the dashboard and the chocolate Labrador in the footwell. And you knew when you got to the zebra crossing, she'd select third because it was basically doing the right speed. <laughs> <laughs> And so, you know, yeah, it was amazing. And the other thing was the DB4 GT that he used to tow the GT40 on. And that was um, John Whitmore's GT40. And there's lovely stories because when he used to go down to Le Mans with it, he'd be towing it. Because, of course, that was the jobbing driver in him. Yeah. That was part of the experience. It well, wasn't that's how about... cars were taken to circuits. Of they course were, it was. They, maybe they were flown somewhere occasionally, but most of the time they were trailered they or were. even driven. Uh, yeah. I mean, the car had been uh, driven yeah. to the circuit, raced, yeah. and provided they haven't pranged it, drive it drive back. Drive it back. And, you know, he loved those trips to Le Mans with the, the, the DB4, because he loved the DB4, absolutely adored yeah. it. And then hauling the, the um, GT40 on the back. And, of course, there was a little stop-off point that the journos knew. So Dennis Jenks yeah. would always know if he saw a GT40 going along the hedge line, that was Innes, yeah. and that in five minutes there'd be a drink on the table waiting for him because they all used to meet at this place. Yeah. And that's what it was like, you know. But growing up with those cars, to be fair... Um, in my later years, when I sort of went to school in Scotland, I was, what, 11, 12, 13. Of course, my dad used to make... He always used to arrive late to pick me up because he'd always then think, what's the most exotic car I can come and pick Christian up from yeah. from school? And I used to cringe because the girls, all of my... Well, they weren't really friends. They were sort of, you know, the school would be all at the window. What's Mr. Ireland going to come in today? <laughs> I mean, it was a boarding school, so this wasn't very often this occurrence would happen. But they'd all be waiting, and and a GT40 or an Aston Martin, the latest Aston Martin, because, of course, he was still doing test driving for them, would turn up, and all the girls would be swooning. (laughs) And the headmistress, which was even more creepy, would be rushing out (laughs) to give him a hug and a kiss, and i think, oh, no. (laughs) And, you know, in those days... I had no concept of those cars. I loved them, of course I did. Um, And I had no concept of their value or really that they were really that special, except that everyone swooned over them. And they sounded good. I loved the sound. I loved the feel of them. But, you know, there were so many times I stood at that window and I thought, I wish he would turn up in a Morris Minor. (laughs) (laughs) And be like everybody else. But um, hey ho! Looking back, oh my God! I, I yes, I. I mean, just, they I, lived in the garage. They were part of what I it knew. It was the guy opened the garage doors and they were sat there. Yes, and and I did used to go to school in a GT40. We had one for a while. Yeah. A road one. Um, and and the GTO I don't remember. I was quite small. Mm. The E-type I do. Yeah. Um, and then of course reams and reams of Aston Martins. Yeah which I loved, and I inherited my father's love of them. 
just because they were so sexy. And they were, I don't know, they were quite manly cars as well. They weren't girly cars. You know, you actually had to drive Well, the them. other thing by then, the James Bond films would be out yes. with uh, Connery driving. Oh, no, and we had, the D, that, we had that DB5. At our, I've got a picture in front of our rather nice Georgian mansion. And uh, the James Bond, I'm sitting on my pony. Yeah. Um, as you do. Looking very grumpy because I think I'd been told I had to sit on the pony and yeah. do something. And then there was the James Bond car in the background. So the actual car was there. Yeah. Do you know they Dad brought, had it for a while. Do you know they've just brought out a replica one? It's about yes. 2.7 million and it's not road legal. It's not road no, well, legal. You think crazy. what a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got plastic machine guns. You think what a Well, that's not with. fair. No. No. <laughs> God, talking about plastic machine guns, my father did... Um, he did try and buy a tank. Oh, right. And I do remember us all thinking, no, Dad, you've really lost the plot here. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do with it? I know I'm, Parkinson's I'm going to shoot everybody. <laughs> it was during that time where I think he I think he desperately wanted to be a recluse and get away from yeah. everybody. But no, the thought of him having a tank, tank. God, or, no, that would have been a bit much. I mean, just out of interest, <laughs> how did he become a trawler captain? Yes. Um... <laughs> <laughs> When he, oh, I suppose when he, I mean, after he retired, mm. he then was sports editor of Autocar. Yeah. And we lived in London. And that's because the stepmother, number one, was a Londoner. Um, and she wanted not to live in Wales and have the big, lovely house and everything. So, you know, and she wanted to move back to London. Mm. And I think for that period, Dad hated London. He's a, he's slightly reclusive you know he likes his own space and i think it was his way of getting back (laughs) right we're moving up he bought a plot of land Mm. by the sea kukubri which is where they used to have whilst he never lived there permanently used to have um holidays up there with his family yeah and he just absolutely adored it and he said i want to go back to scotland i want to now enjoy a life where there's nobody who knows me um, there's nobody going to come banging on the door and I can just go fishing. Hmm. So he had this idea. We bought Most a... people buy a rod and reel. They don't No, he trawl. did that. <laughs> no, but he had all of that and he never caught a salmon. Yeah. But he'd go every year religiously to try and catch hmm. a salmon. He never caught one. So he decided, well, if you can't bite, you know, catch a salmon, I'd better go and buy a fishing boat. Yeah. <laughs> so he went over to Stavanger yeah. in Norway where we bought a yacht, which was lovely, and he bought that back. And then he went back again, oh, I don't know whether it was the same year, um, and he bought his first fishing boat. Yeah. And it was a 45-foot fishing boat, mm. and he was going to do lobsters. So, yeah, that was fine. <laughs> um, and, and in a way, he loved it. I think he got out of his system all of the hurt, mm. all of the stuff that he walked away from when he walked away from motor racing. Mm. I think it was his his mental health moment um but i think it cost him a lot more angst and, and actually cost him everything um because he then decided not having one fishing boat was enough so he then bought a small fishing boat i think he had that um sort of built which was the little it was called the eddie g then there was the kinloch that was the medium-sized one and then he bought uh, an f off trawler yeah a big trawler that would go out, you know, to where (laughs) nobody else goes, that kind of thing, an 80-foot thing. Um, For queenies, the scallops, the little baby scallops, not the big ones, the small ones, because 
the west coast of Scotland, and if you went further out into the Atlantic, that's what you caught. Um, he knew nothing about it. Yeah. But he said, it's all right. I'll know various men that I can mm. find that will be the skippers. I'll learn and, as I go along. <laughs> and I think in those days they had these um, echo finders. Oh, yeah. Like so, sonar, yeah, yeah, that sort of kind of stuff. And so he thought he'd be fine. And to be fair, he worked really hard at it. And he'd be out there for days on end. Um, but it was a hard living. And he went into it at the wrong time. Yeah. He also had a couple of skippers that liked to drink a little bit mm. too much. And I think um, a lot of money was wasted. I think his knowledge of the big trawler fishing yeah. was not there. His the lobsters though that was fabulous. God, that I used to come home from school in the holidays, and I used to do the lobster fishing with him. Yeah. We go out in this little boat, and you'd be quite close to the cliffs, so it was interesting. Yeah, and then you'd spend the rest of the evening at home, try you bandaging up with elastic bands, yeah. their claws. Then we packed them up, and they were all the time clacking away, making yeah. this terrible noise. And we packed them into these boxes with ice, and then we put them on the overnight train yeah. down to London to Bentley's Wine Bar. Right. And, you know, that was pocket money, and he he loved it. Yeah. And it was sort of something, I don't know, it was the recluse in him. He wanted to, <clears> you know, get away from it all. But he ended as like president of the British Racing Drivers yes. Club. Uh, I mean, there is a there is a very <laughs> exclusive club. I am not a member. I have friends who are members, uh, but there's a club that, as shall we say, ebbs and flows and has its ups and downs. I <clears throat> oh, mean, gosh, how yes. did he? How did Innis Island go on with it? Well, I'm not quite sure the exact story. There are fa- various stories going around about that. One thing I will say, which is lovely, and I, I think this is what I loved about my father he never paid a subscription (laughs) (laughs) much to i think some of the boards Mm. um discussed and certainly john surtees and wizzo wizzo williams who obviously you've heard of and did you ever meet wizzo oh yes i met him on quite a few occasions i was a passenger of his on a few occasions he was a passenger of mine on the other occasion oh was he yeah it's safe to say i didn't frighten him anywhere near as much as he frightened me well Wizzo, I met him at Castle Coombe many years ago and we just got talking and he was telling me about Dad's sort of rise to the president's sort of seat, so to speak, and and, and the board meeting where it was announced. Um, because I think at the time there were some difficulties around the circuit and walking shore yeah. and things were going on and also Bernie. Yeah. Now... Several people Do on be that. Be careful! I can't stand. I, I, I'm I not saying I can't anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I think at the time, several people said, "Look, we need somebody in who can deal with Bernie and sort the walking shore stuff out." Yeah. And they said, "Innis is your man." And at that stage, apparently, John Surtees was seen banging on the table. But he's never paid a subscription. <laughs> How can we have him as the president? <laughs> And apparently my dad, every time it came to that time of the year where a subscription was due, um, somebody, um, probably Wizzo, would sort of perk up and say, oh, I've just had a call from Innes. Um, The boat's sunk. He can't afford (laughs) his subscription. The dog's died. The wife's left him. And everybody would sit there and think, oh, typical Innes. Here we go. Um, And he never did pay a subscription. But I think what he did when he took on that role Mm. was I think he paid it all back 
doubly. He, yeah. he sorted a lot out. I think a lot of people um, had a lot of, held him in huge, had a lot of respect for him at that time because he dealt with things in a way that maybe only he could have done. Yeah. Um, and he was there only for a short space of time, but just in that short space of time, I think people who maybe didn't know him very well grew to love him. Then you had a younger generation that grew to love him because he was he was everything a president epitomizes, I yeah. think. And he worked really hard. And of course, at the time, he I, unbeknown to me, he had cancer. Yeah. Um, and he worked at that. He used to stay over there at the farmhouse a lot of the time during the week to get things done. And I think, you know, he was the right man for the job at the time. Now, there's also the book. I mean, the interesting thing on social media, the name of Innis Island and images of him and various other things. God, he was good back. looking, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's the famous book, All Arms and Elbows. Yes. Is that still available? Yes. Right. Yes. Right. I mean, it's... It... <laughs> You can you can get it on eBay. It varies in price, and that's the bit that always amazes me. Um, there are two other editions. Um, the second edition has got the lovely um, 17 TVX on the front. Yeah. The OGA car, the Essex team. And I'm a, a friend, and I do know James Ogier, and we have many a conversation about, God, I wish we hadn't sold that car for however much, it, you know, <laughs> £2,000 or something. Mm. But um, so, yeah, it is still available, and there are three different versions, and may, maybe that's something... Which is the one you need to get? It's all right, I'll sort something. No, I mean, for anybody oh, listening. <laughs> oh, oh, OK, sorry. Um, certainly the first edition. Yeah. Because it's... And, and I will use the word, it's unbastardised. Right. The second edition has got a little bit added to Filter, it. It's a bit filtered. Yeah, and some different pictures. Yeah. And and I, uh, I don't know, people might argue with this, and it doesn't matter, this is my opinion. In my opinion, my father wrote that book from his heart. Yeah. The pictures were pictures. Um, I've got some of the originals of that book, actually, I found out. Um but they were of that time. It's what he wanted. Yeah. And I kind of feel if you are of a journalistic nature, would you want somebody after your death to go and then put other things in it, but keep the main of it the same? You either rewrite the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but don't add bits here and there. Yeah. It just So the first edition, obviously, is the one to go for. Um, but it does go for silly money. So actually, the second edition's a nice one. I, I quite like that, right. to be fair. And it's got TVX, which I love. Although, I must admit, the picture of him flying through the air, <laughs> <laughs> it epitomises, A, that era. Yeah. B, I think it's a great um, heading, all arms and elbows. It mm. says, you know, it says what it was like in those days. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but you still can. And then of course there was Motor Racing Today, which was his first book. Yeah, that's that's a nice little entry piece, I suppose. Or well, Arms and Elbows has got the stories in it. Yeah. It's got the meat. Some people believe it, some people don't, because they think, how on earth could he get away with it? Believe you me, that was what it was like, and that was definitely him. Um, you know, the antics with him and Steve McQueen. God, I'd have loved to have been there. <laughs> Steve McQueen was one of my heroes. And that was one thing I will never forgive my father was in making any introduction 
to Steve McQueen and also in the later years in the 80s when they did Dad and Sterling he rake, he um, hauled Sterling out of retirement to go and do the Playboy Championships in yeah. America in the 80s and of course they were racing against Paul Newman yeah. another one of my heroes and not once did my old man say oh come on Tom let's go and let come and come and meet Paul I'm thinking oh <laughs> <laughs> and to finish up how much of your dad is in you? How much do you think you're like your dad? Oh, How I'm... much do you think your dad influenced you? I would have said he didn't influence me at all, but I know, because I'm now in my 60s, I know I'm just like him. Yeah. I just didn't get to hold a racing... I, I mean, I did my own little bits of racing, and I took to bikes. Um, it's there. Mm. And I still, I do have, and actually, my boss always says to me, "God, you must be just like your father. You're so honourable. You're so loyal, and you want to give." And Dad was like that. And I, you know, I think it's a rare, rare thing. I'm not saying that I've got all of his qualities. I probably have got some of them. I've certainly had some of his ghastly tendencies. <laughs> and um, you know, I did the wild child stuff. Yeah. Um, completely out of control, but I did it without any any reason like he did sometimes. Um, so, yeah, tip off the old block, well, shall we say. Christian Island, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for taking time out and uh, allowing us to meet up here in uh, a rather pleasant Cheshire evening. But once again, Christian Island, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for joining me on the Backseat Driver Radio Show. Mark, thank you. This has been absolutely wonderful. I mean, it's just what I love doing. And and meeting you and, and your good lady sitting here. Do you know, we could be anywhere and time means nothing when you're sitting talking about stuff we all understand. And that's fantastic. And thank you for taking time to meet up with me. You know, I'm just, you know, little... <laughs> and thank God that I had a father like I did. I feel very, very lucky. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to find out more, Google Innis Island. That's I N E S and Ireland as in the country. Absolutely. And your laptop, your tablet, your mobile device will virtually clog up. <laughs> Once again, Christian, thanks so much. Indeed. Thank you. beaten on price never beaten on service whether it's cars bikes or commercials Hoddy tires are the best in the business and when it comes to tire expertise and advice to supplying the correct tires for your vehicle specific requirements nobody comes close to david lakin and the Hoddy tires team so give them a call on 01200 613 192 or visit the website at hoddytires.co.uk 